Evening Warehouse. Um, we were uh, together as a leadership team. By the way, if you need a Bible, there's a stack of them in the back. And uh, tonight, most of them are in English, I saw. Um, so that's helpful for a lot of us. Um, that isn't always the case. Uh, the leadership community uh, was together last night in what we lovingly called the Leadership Lounge um, to talk about what God's doing in this place and, and, and uh, how he would speak to us as leaders and, and so forth and so on. And I, I just want to tell you again, uh, Justin, if you're new to this community, you've just there's a bunch of great folks that God is using to provide leadership in here. And as we were together last night... Uh, it was sort of a thing of God. I think Eric Holbert let us sing that in singing that song. And, and Jeremy immediately said, we got to We have to do that tomorrow night. Um, we're starting. We started a new series last week on the on the Ten Commandments. And um, the second commandment is the one that often gets called the idolatry commandment. So what better song to sing than that one about pure hearts, clean hands, and there will be no other than God. So as I said, we start a new series. The, uh, and I don't know what you, th- when you hear Ten Commandments, I don't know what you think. Um, but really, if you look at all the societies, you will find, when it comes to sort of legal systems, you will find the Ten Commandments all around the world has provided sort of framework for how society thinks about itself. The Ten Commandments were given to God's people to provide that kind of organizing framework and for it to be an influence. That's... That's what we're talking about for the next umpteen weeks together. Question. How do you consider the roles? Think about this. How do you consider the role that image and images play in your life? How do they play itself out in your life? I mean, do you consider the ways that images signal to us the way we're supposed to think about things? Because they do. Images signal the way that we are supposed to think about things, sometimes even how to think about things. So images are really important. Uh, let's do this. Let's see what brings to, what this guy right here brings to mind. See if we can prove the point. Assuming this guy's going to come to life. Hang on, not that guy. That guy. Guy looks like a little idol, doesn't he? I just think it's kind of ironic that it's Oscar night and we're doing the second commandment commandment all about idol because uh with a lot of love for my friends in the entertainment industry i was once a starving artist there too um for a little while uh that's the idol of the entertainment industry and uh, there's a lot of uh a lot of fun so i'm glad you guys were all here tonight and have dvrs so you can watch the oscars when you get home Okay, so now I want to do a little audience participation, and uh, to do that, I guess I need a microphone, because um, I want to see what we think about images, and let's actually see how much power they've got. I'm going to work left to right across the radio dial, and Melissa, thank you for volunteering. Stand up here. Welcome to the game show. Take that. Um, here's what I want you to do. Um, just like when we saw that and we thought, Oscar, when you see this next image, which you already got a peek of, um, just tell me what comes to mind. What do, you, what do you think of when you see this? Just do it. What else? Nike. Um, swoosh. <laughs> That's good. Immediate recognition, right? Not a lot of thinking? Let's continue this game. Uh, Pete, stand up. Welcome to my game. It's for you. You don't get this one. Okay. 
um, Hitler, Swastika, is that how you pronounce it? Germany, World War II, um, American History X. <laughs> nice, on movie night. Nice pull. That's good. That's good. Uh, I'm going to cross the room. A little equal time here for the next one. Jen, stand up and join me in this game. You tell me. Uh, liberty, freedom, I don't know. <laughs> uh, immigrants, sure. Go That's good. Paris, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you, know what, you know what else I think? Hang on, don't stay. You know what else I think about her? I think that's a woman celebrating something. Oh, good. Would you happen to know any women who maybe are celebrating anything recently? <laughs> who, who would that be? I just got engaged. <laughs> and, and, and Ryan knows, right? Okay, good. <laughs> you know, I don't want to take anything for granted. All of these things mean something. They just come up and we respond. They've got ideas that are embedded in them and, just, and so we respond. As I said, last week we began this series about the Ten Commandments. This was the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. The second command is really a continuation of this one. Except it's an explanation that says, well, let me give it to you first. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Which is why we get this idea of idolatry about idols. This is a continuation in many ways of the first command because God is telling us how he chooses to be worshipped. The first command, he says... I am God, period, end of story. Now, my people, I'm going to tell you how to relate to me. So, so it's about image. So how is it that we choose to relate to God? And how do we think about this command? Uh, well, surfing around on the net this week, I found this blog, and I'm just going to read it to you, this, this entry. God is angry again, and he's a vengeful God. I learned of God's apparent displeasure at graven images. Second commandment, right? The nuns at Mother Cabrini's shrine were thanking God on Sunday that no one was hurt when a bolt of lightning shot out of the sky, struck the 33-foot statue of Jesus. The lightning bolt broke off one of Jesus' arms and a hand and damaged one of his feet. Thousands of people visit the shrine each year. Visitors climb the 373 stairs to the Sacred Heart statue, praying as they go. Not hard enough, apparently, he editorializes. The message couldn't be clearer. Now get this. This is what this guy says. God is taking time off from sending hurricanes to punish America so that he can punish those nuns for breaking the second commandment. That's a pretty cynical take on the second commandment. But as I bumped into this online, I began to think, what do we really think about this commandment? Because I bet you a lot of us don't really think we're in danger of idolatry. Probably not a lot of us this morning got up and went out in the yard and kneeled down in, in front of some sort of image or statue. But, but if we're honest, I think we have to say that a lot of people like, like this fairly cynical blogger 
thinks about it differently. So, and thinks about it with variety. So, so, so what does it mean to us? Well, as a few of you guys, thank you for not volu- for un- involuntarily being a part of uh, the imagery show. Uh, as some of these guys began us thinking about tonight, images are embedded with meaning. They're filled with meaning. Whether it's something we recognize immediately, like that swastika, or whether it's a shape. What, think of it in, this, in two ways. Images have two things. They have a form and they have a meaning. The form is this, I'm intentionally trying to create something that you'll recognize that's going to communicate something to you. The meaning side is what it's going to communicate. And as an artist, that's what I want to do. I want to create something that communicates. Images, they have form and they have meaning. Now, to to understand the Bible and this particular story in the Bible, like a lot of things, it's really important to know the backstory. Here's what's going on. When this is written, the, the, the people of Israel have just ended a time of 400 years of being slaves in Egypt. 400 years. And as Egypt, as in most of the, the Near East at the time, was filled full of what we'll call pagan peoples. Pagan peoples are simply those who worship more than one god. Now, it could be the god of the stool. It could be the god of the floor. It could be the god of rain. It could be the god of anything. But, but there's a multiplicity of gods. Okay, that's the background, and it's really important to understand that. Because their world was filled full of pagan peoples. God's first command, there's no God but me. One of the mistakes we often make is reading the Bible through our eyes today as if nothing else has happened before us. The Bible is written at a time and a place for all time, but we can't forget the time and the place. It's written to this people who have not known anything but a multiplicity of gods. And so when God says there's no God before me and you will not worship idols... He's getting somewhere. He has a point because he knows there's these variety of forms and images out there. And he's going to instruct his people a little bit how to think about this. Now, the second commandment is concerning how Yahweh, Jehovah, has chosen to be worshipped. Chosen not in I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to me, people, but chosen in this is the way that's right. Walk in it. See, the rest of the backstory that you need to know is, is in this part of the world, the, in, in, throughout the Near East, you, you would create these graven images. You, you, you'd build this statue or a post. It could be a, a, it could be a tree that had magical power the, or was ascribed to have magical power. You, you would assign this. I'll call, we'll pick on a tree. I'll assign this tree to be the place where the deity of rain comes. And so what happens now in my little rain cult is that we basically um, are blessing it in such a way that we say, now you do what I need. You will control the rain for my enemies so it will not rain on their field. You will control the rain for us so it will rain on ours. So again, put yourself in the place of the people of Israel. They're coming out of a completely pantheistic pagan society where they've seen people worshiping lots of things. And what they know about that worship is that it's worship on demand. You do what I want done. Think of it as like, like if that little Oscar guy we used, uh, that little statue, um, think of him as like a remote control. Because in many ways, that's how it was treated. Well, empo- this thing has power, 
And when I need it to do what it needs to do, I hit the switch. And God says, this is not who I am. You do not choose how to worship me. I will tell you how to worship me. It's not coincidental that God goes to this commandment second. The first one, no gods before me. He's the creator. We believe he created us. So if there's anyone who knows us, it's God. And what he knows is our tendency to want to worship something. And so he says after the first commandment is don't do this. Don't create these images because he knows our tendency, our humanness, that we will begin to image him in some way or another. So he does this preemptive strike. If you go on and look at Exodus 20, 23, 22 through 24, you will find at the end, of here's 10 commandments. And at the end of this, he reiterates one commandment and one commandment only. And it's this one. Now he could pick all the commandments and he comes back to this one. Because again, he knows us through and through. So he reemphasizes this command. You see, our tendency is I want to package God. I want to make him something nice that I can put in my pocket. I want to be able to whip him out like an answer to a quiz. I want to be able to rub a lucky rabbit's foot when something really rotten is happening in my life or I've got a great job interview coming up that I really want. That's how I want to, that's my human tendency is to worship God and to turn him into some sort of figure like all the peoples of the earth around them were doing with their gods. God is profoundly transcendent. That's a big fancy word that basically means he's both here and there simultaneously. And that's profoundly, again, important because these idols is about putting a God in a place. God says, I won't be captured like that. The fact is, I'm transcendent. I am both above and within. And in fact, if we took God, made him in some kind of God honoring image of Jehovah and put him here, in effect, we literally have grounded God. And he's no longer transcendent. It's as if this is my little God statue and I can now come here and meet him uniquely. And God says, I'm, I'm transcendent. You, you, you can't treat me like that. I will not be boxed in. I am not human. Idolatry denies the very transcendent nature that God has declared about himself in command one. So let's, let, let's return to that backstory now. So you've got these Jews who have been enslaved for 400 years, rescued by God from a place of many gods. But they're rescued to something, right? God came to Abraham some many, many, many hundreds of years before. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to be a blessing to you if you will accept it so that I will start, I will birth a great people from you, which became the people of Israel, so that you can bless all of the earth. And that blessing is that you as a people will tell all the peoples of the earth who I am so they can be reunited with their creator. That's that blessing. So they're rescued from something, but they're also rescued to something. Now, again, context is important here. The thing they're being rescued to is to, to, to be returned to this land of promise that was given to Abraham, which we might would call the Middle East today, to be returned to that place where historically Israel has been. Now, in that place, there were these people called the Canaanites. The Canaanites were people who worshipped lots of gods, just like where they had come from and where they were headed. They were bookended by the same kind of idolatry. God was preparing them for what they were entering into. The story is important. 
God is preparing them by giving them commands to protect them. He's realigning them with what they were made for. When our children were two and three years old, uh, we had a few commands. Like we would, I think it's safe to say there should be some commands with your kids. Like, for instance, you may not cross the street without your father. That's just the way it is. You're a three-year-old. You may not cross the street. End of story. It's not open to discussion. I'm not going to ask how you're feeling about this. We aren't going to discuss experiencing it together. We aren't going to explore the possibilities of street crossing. We aren't going to consider the options of various ways to get across the street. You just are not crossing the street without your father. That's what the command is for. God, who describes himself intimately as our parent, as our father. He says, you will not cross the street alone. The backstory is important. They're coming from this place with a multiplicity of gods. They're going to this place with a multiplicity of gods being worshipped. They're crossing the street, which in this case would be the River Jordan, to a very foreign place. Their father says, you will not cross the street alone. And you will not cross the street until I'm ready to cross it with you. So command one establishes the monotheistic nature of worship. God, there's one God. Command two establishes the power of the relationship between God and we, his people. We do not get to summon him up at a whim. We do not get to treat him like some sort of cosmic bellboy. So how is this idea, idea, though, of not imaging God on our terms worked itself out? Okay, so I know I shouldn't do it, Scott, but like here, I'm looking at this statue, and in some sense, there's a lot of religious figures that have been done throughout history. Well, the fact is, friends, that in first Judaism and then in Christianity, there's been a great tug of war about the issue of art and what is imaging God and what isn't. Matter of fact, if you go back to the 8th and 9th century, you'd find that all biblical images were just not allowed. The Pope at the time decreed no more, no art, Bunch of stuff was destroyed and wiped out. New Pope comes along about 100 years later. So he says, art's back in. It's okay. That's what we do with it. I was sitting at the, the Getty Museum, you know, down off Sepulveda Pass a few years ago. or walking through it. And there was this one painting. It was a crucifixion scene. And it literally made me sit down. It was amazing. It had so much power to it that I sat there and looked at it for just 15 minutes. And I thought, boy, what a shame if that painting didn't exist. Because it literally drove me to a moment of reflection on the transcendent God. Well, I don't know how to talk about this command about images without a bunch of images. But I also know that I'm not smart enough to talk about these things. So at times like this, you go to the bullpen and you're calling a left-hander. For all you baseball fans out there, it's spring training. Life is good again. Um, And I'm going to bring in the lefty. Um, I want you to meet my wife, Nancy. Uh, my wife, Nancy, uh, studied art. She's an illustrator. She's, come on up here, you can start walking now. Um, <laughs> she's uh, in the art and framing industry. Um, she, Nan has taught me all kinds of stuff about art over the years. And I've said, would you be willing to talk to us a little bit about how it is that this weird thing about not imaging God um, has sort of been worked out? And uh, so for the next 10 minutes or so, 
I want her to take you on a little tour of how it is we encounter God through art, historically. And now I'll pop back up. My live jet? Thanks. Scott bought me this today. Watch this. Ooh. Okay. Let's talk about art. These are murals from the top of a catacomb underneath Rome. During the period of persecution, where Christians were not allowed to be Christians, the Romans thought we were a bothersome and dangerous cult. Uh, when you were martyred, you had to you know, bury your own. There are up to 4 million people buried in these catacombs. And this right here is a chapel, one of the pardon me, oldest ones. And look right here. Oh, that's not good for you guys. Let me go over here. Can you see that that's a shepherd with a lamb over his shoulder and there's two little sheep on each side? The good shepherd is one of our earliest Christian symbols of who Jesus is and what he's like. And here it is again in another catacomb in a different place. There's Jesus being the shepherd and his little sheep beside him. Now, here's a symbol that didn't survive. That's a peacock. That's a peacock. That's a peacock. Peacocks for eternity that, you know, eternal life. We don't use peacocks for that anymore. Maybe it means uh, vanity to us. That one didn't sort of make the cut. Here's another good one. They unearthed that one in 1940 in a catacomb. And that's Jesus as Apollo. He's got his chariot and his two horses pulling him. Because remember, this is from the Roman culture. And we Christians were, were trying out different symbols to see what works. And we all decided... Uh, Jesus is Apollo. No, that doesn't work for us. Let's let that one go. So we don't use that anymore. Now here's, uh, this is a mosaic in glass on the side of a church on the interior. An artist has one picture to give you an entire story. We don't tell stories like this anymore. You get an hour and a half for a movie, you get 60 seconds for a commercial, you get a book and somebody for a long time. With a mural, you get one shot. Now, you're looking at that going, I have no idea what that story is. Now, in 430 AD, everybody knows that's Abraham, that's Lot. They have parted company. See, they're not touching, no touching. This, these are the daughters of Lot. Instruments of evil, of course. Here's Isaac. He's not even born yet, but he gets to be in the picture. This is Sodom. This is maybe the church. These are all the people who are going to go with. Look how concerned she looks. Like maybe she should be over there. But anyway, but check out how they're creating a whole narrative with their body poster. You know, it's like a pantomime. I'm ready, Scott. Okay, now. Now we're out of the period of persecution. Constantinople says it's all good. So now look how Jesus has changed. The symbol of him as the good shepherd is still there. But now he's wearing a golden robe and he has a purple cloth across his front. Very imperial, like he's a ruler instead of just a teacher and a shepherd and a philosopher. And the sheep are all looking at him. So it's sort of grown up, but the symbolism is still there. Thanks. Now, have you noticed so far we haven't seen God? We've seen Jesus. 
We've seen apostles. We've seen symbolism for eternity and heaven and all that. But we haven't seen God yet. And this is how you can see the artists are taking very seriously the second commandment. They themselves don't want to push that. The current philosophy of the day was because Jesus came down and took form as a human, then we can paint him. We can draw him. He had a form. We're not duplicating him like an animal or something. We are reproducing an image he made of himself. But here you go. Boy, this is tough. This is the Trinity. Again, a lot of this symbolism has been lost, but I'm going to walk you through it. Here you've got the cross. In the center there, there's a dove. Do you see God? Look really hard for him. No? Okay. Right there. It's a hand coming out of the clouds, releasing the dove. That's it. That's as close to breaking the second commandment as the artist was going to get and the church was going to let him. That's it. That's what you get. So what you get also is here. These are all the clouds. See all that? There's Elijah. There's Moses. Because they were there at the transfiguration. You've got one sheep, one, two, three sheep. Because those are representing the apostles who were also at the Mount of Transfiguration. Sheep. What would that symbolize to you guys? If I really made you think of it, you'd figure it out. Martyrdom. You know, all the way back from the original story. But the minute I say it, you go... Oh, yeah, yeah. So the symbolism is in our heads. We've been slowly given it over the years, but we're not active with it because we can all read and we have better storytelling than one picture. But here's your 12. Thanks, dear. The 12 disciples. And this guy right here, he's the patron saint of the church. You'd think that was Jesus, but nope, that's Apollos. Okay, so you think it's only in pictures or murals or something like that. It's not at all. This stuff is deep. Here's the floor plan of a church. This is a real typical floor plan. You don't have to have these transepts on either side. But we like the idea. We've liked the idea since sort of the dawn of architecture. We want it from the sky to look like a cross. There. Now, we as Protestants, we like humble architecture. But it hasn't always been that way, and there was plenty of good reason for that. Pretend you're in a medieval town, and you live in a hovel. You duck down to get into your hovel. It's dirty, it's dry, it's either very, very cold or very, very hot. You walk to town through the dust. You walk up the stairs, and you push open the big, thick, heavy doors of the cathedral and walk in. And you just entered an entirely different world. I could try to explain heaven to you all day long, sitting in a chair in your hovel, about how glorious and grand it is. And your imagination would never grasp it. You walk into that cathedral, and it's quiet. And the sun is shining beautifully through the celestial windows. And the ceiling is so high up. And it's cool and it's clean. And you go, I get it. Maybe heaven is like this. So the architecture had a reason. That loftiness of God. Check this out. This is again this um, dome of heaven. Do you remember from the first slide how it was that big circle with the little um, 
shepherds in the middle. That's the dome of heaven. That helps you realize the, the whole encompassing. That symbol, again, is sort of lost to us. We don't think of that. But here it is, 40 windows. For those of you who enjoy numerology, go to town. 40 windows holding it up right there. And this is incredible, holding up the basically the dome of heaven. And the light comes in. And get this, up and through this dome, it's all little pieces of gold tile. So when the sun hits it, it just starts bouncing around. And it's just like you sort of get to see what it would be to look at something so bright that you couldn't look at it. And we read about that in the Bible, but having an impression of that, of your own experience, makes you go, okay, I can get that. Turning some of these things that are words into things that we can experience. Art does that for us, and it's not meant to be evil in any way. Okay, so before you get to walk into those big double doors and see the vaulted architecture, first you've got to pass under this. Okay, right now that looks like a jumble of statuary. <sighs> Folks, <laughs> this is nightmare stuff. This is Jesus coming back, the second judgment. Okay, he's not coming back as your savior this time. All these little people under here are souls who are about to be weighed by these two. Can you see that's a little bowl and there's a little guy in there? Here's another one. That's the, the weight. Um, the scale. The scale has been broken over time. Stone is like that. So you've got this little devil over here. He's trying to push the weight down. Here's an angel over here. He's pushing the weight up. Here's... A nasty gargoyle guy throwing a soul into a furnace. Here's a guy coming out of a dragon head, grabbing souls and pulling them up. Check this out. Here's a pair of hands. He's got that guy by the neck, and he's pulling him up into the afterworld. Because this is, oh, but there's some good news. Right here, here's a little angel. And he's got the little kids who are under the age of uh, accountability. And they get to go straight to heaven. Here's your mansions in heaven. It's not really appealing, but the guy only had a two-by-two-foot area to work with. (laughs) So these symbolisms were full of it, and it's meant to be a story. So sometimes you'll see the, the forefathers of our faith gave a little bit of a pass to the imagery as long as it relayed a story and told um, the illiterate what was going on. A stained glass is just another classic example of full of imagery that we've basically lost because we can read. Um, Here's God. There's God. It's hard to find images of God. But this is, uh, he's making Adam right there. And over here, he's making Eve. And there he's talking to him in the garden. And here they're, there's Eve being naughty and they're sharing with Adam and then and then they're being kicked out. And I mean, you would have figured that out. And that thing is 600 years old. And uh, no, 6,000, 800. Yeah. But that is a Sunday school story that all of us would get right now. So some of this really archaic imagery is still solid, but it's for storytelling, not for confusing with with uh, idol worship. Last one. Okay, now, there's God. Now, is Michelangelo going to hell for this? I doubt it very much. You're going to, you're looking at right here. See how the fingers don't meet? This was, this is the big, big deal about this picture is that it's at the moment of animation of Adam creation. 
And all of these people behind God represent the thousands of generations. As Matt explained to us, people have been making children for thousands of years. Thank you, Matt. I was completely unaware of that part. <laughs> and here's Eve right here behind, behind the cook of God's arm. Now, he's been personified here, but it's not like you would worship this image. And that's the big difference, is whether something has been artistically created to inspire you to think it is God. We would all acknowledge, as modern people looking at a Renaissance painting, that's not really God. That's an artist's rendition of God. That is key. Now, I'd like to think that we're all above worrying about ever worshiping idols. But in my frame shop, I have a Catholic priest who came to me with a picture of Jesus on the cross. And he said he needed glass to be put on the oil painting. I gave him the big talk about how it's really not totally necessary. It's, yeah, to get it. He says, no, I need you to do it because people keep trying to kiss it. That's a problem. That's current day. So artists still, and those who, you know, commission artwork for the church, do have to be careful and and continually think about how to apply the second commandment. Good. I'm keeping my pointer. Thank you, Jeff. Humans created by God. That means we have his genetic stuff in us. God is profoundly creative. Is it reasonable to think that we would be creative as well? We love to create stuff, don't we? And I would really like to create a God that I could put in a box and carry with me. That when I had profound problems, I could just open the box. Kind of shake him out. Make him work for me. He knows us. Are, are, are you familiar with the term imagio Dei? It's a Latin term that just means the image of God. If you look in, in Genesis 1, the description of the creation of, of mankind, you will find, he says, I made man in my image. He knows us intimately. God says, I made you in my image. He did not say, you get to make me in your image. That's what this command is about. Friends, and this is the challenge to us. Will we image God or will we allow God to image himself? Will you decide who God is, what he does and what he looks like? Or does God get to, by declaration, the great I am, declare who he is? Will you decide you don't like that God? So if I do this and do that. Or will you let God image himself and say, I am that I am. I want to conclude with some questions for us. I'm going to put on screen and I'm just going to ask you to think about them a little bit as a reflection of our time. And then I'll come back up and we'll close. Image matters. 
image brings form. An image will bring meaning. And it's the source of image that matters the most. God said you will have no gods other than me. God says your worship will be on my terms. God says my image matters most. And God says image matters. Father, we honor you as God. You are that you are, is what you declare when you made yourself known to Moses. Forgive us, Father, for those times when we have chosen to remake you into our image. We have made you at times a petty tribal God, but you are the great God. You are the God that when we encounter him, like that medieval villager walking into an amazing cathedral, our breath is taken away. We are like Isaiah on our best days when we encounter you and we see you high and lifted up and we fall to our knees and we are amazed. Father, let us see you as you have described yourself. Lord, as we leave, we go knowing that we bear the very image of you, God. We go knowing that the God who placed his image in us longs for us to worship him with honesty, with openness, with intensity, and with mystery. We go knowing that he will not tolerate competition for his affection. His love for us is neither negotiable or changeable. His love for us is complete and it is perfect. May the world see in us daily the image of the one true God. That is our cry. That is our prayer. And we offer it in the name of that one true God. Amen. And good evening.